Support for this podcast and the following message come from Dignity Memorial. When your celebration of life is prepaid today, your family is protected tomorrow. Planning ahead is truly one of the best gifts you can give your family. For additional information, visit DignityMemorial.com. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. It's rap month on our show. And all month we are bringing you nothing but rappers. First up this week is Angie Stone. Now, you might be thinking, wait, this Angie Stone? Yeah, that Angie Stone, who, as you can hear, is uh, singing on that track from her 2001 album, Mahogany Soul. She's a hit maker as a singer, but also this Angie Stone. That's a song called Funky Sound, Tear the Roof Off, from 1981. The artist, The Sequence, one of the first ever all-women rap groups. Cheryl the Pearl, Blondie, and Angie B., now known as Angie Stone, high school friends turned hip-hop pioneers. So suffice it to say that Angie Stone has some stories to tell. You'll hear those in a minute. But before we get to them... Let's hear a little bit of Angie's new album, Love Language, which came out earlier this year. This track is called The Gym. And, you know, it's about love and the gym. It's like I'm sweating you just for second place. I'm on a chase for love, but I'm in a race. Heavy on my heart, my soul, mind and body. Take it easy, I'm out of shape. Angie Stone, welcome to Bullseye. I'm so happy to have you on the show. (laughs) Thank you. So happy to be here. How did you decide that uh, you were going to have a record that is about uh, love in the gym? Well, you know, when you're going through the ups and downs of life, the roller coaster of, you know, deciding whether you want to stay involved or, you know, go through. It's like being in a gym. So you really have to exercise mentally, emotionally to get through something. And that was what inspired this, this whole uh, gym move. Uh, Something that says, hey, it is what it is, but at the end of the day, You know, everybody has to go through something, so you have to find a way to, you know, 
uh, exert all that energy. And that's what that was for. I feel like at the point in your career that you're at, you're, you've been making love and relationship songs for 30 years. At a certain point, you just must have a giant filofax or something of possible, mm-hmm. possible love metaphors. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yes, absolutely. But my my uh, metaphors have more to do with the world in general, not just mine. So I can look at your situation or uh, a family member situation and internalize it. So all of my music does not speak of just my emotion. It's emotion in general. Did you think you were going to be a singer when you were a kid? To be honest, which I did think I would be a singer. Uh, as a matter of fact, when it was asked, what uh, do you plan on doing in your life? I said I wanted to be a star. Like in elementary school? Mm-hmm. In elementary school. I knew then that I wanted to uh, be a singer. I stayed in the mirror doing this, you know? So it was, in my mind, it was a no brainer. I was, this is what I was born to do. Your father was an amateur singer, semi-professional singer? Is that is that so? My father was a gospel singer. He was a quartet singer. What did you think of that? I loved it because that, that's what trained me. Trained me as an artist to be diversified, to harmonize, to really focus on that you know, thing that has made me famous, harmonizing and, and arrangement. Did he and his group ever rehearse at the house? All the time. That was what I learned from. That was a template that I learned from. What did they sing? Gospel, you know, Canton spirituals, all kind of, you know, gospel songs that kind of reached home. So it was easy, uh, easier said than done um, for me to sit and watch them rehearse. And it was a group of them. So they would sing and harmonize and laugh and joke. And, you know, I would just take it all in. Did you think it was cool that your dad was a singer? Uh, or did you think it was, did you wish your dad was in the, you know, in the stylistics or in parliament instead of singing gospel? Oh, no. I thought it was real cool that my dad was a singer. And I thought, you know, he was different. I thought I would learn from him because I thought he was dope. Did you sing with him? Mm-hmm. All the time. You know, you know, my dad used to, I was the only child. So my dad used to impart that in me very quickly. You know, he would always say, you can do this. When did you start singing with friends at home? When I was 11. What happened? You just stopped doing talent shows and putting stuff together, wanting to do comp- competition for the parks and stuff like that. Did you, like, survey your friend group and know who could sing and start recruiting, or how did it work out? Well, we kind of knew who was who was built to do this because they were dedicated, they were loyal to themselves. So, you know, you kind of knew. 
You ain't had time for nobody who wasn't serious about it. Who was serious about it? Everybody uh, that I was working with had to be serious about it. Or else you didn't you you couldn't play with us. <laughs> I mean, but at the same time, you're talking about 11, 12 years old. I don't think I right. was serious about anything when I was 11 or 12 years old. Yeah, you're serious about the talent. If you want to really, you know, give off that energy, you 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 push yourself uh, with your friends because you're trying to accomplish something. So for me, that that win, that talent show, and that that hustle and flow was what made us tick. What's the first contest or show that you remember singing in? Uh, I sang in a local, like, uh, center, park center uh, called uh, Saxon Home, the recreation room. And we did a song, I did a song called Love on a Two-Way Street, <laughs> ironically. End up being signed to the, the lady many years later, not knowing she would be, you know, play a part in my life. I found What did your dad think about it? Oh, my dad loved it. He loved the fact that, you know, I was a singer. And he uh, loved the fact that I was learning from him. What kind of things did you learn from him? I learned uh, how to arrange, just listening close to the movement. I mimicked it. And it was, you know, easy for me because... He was my dad. More still to come with Angie Stone. Stay with us. It's Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and NPR. This message comes from Apple Card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase. That's 3% on products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. This message comes from NPR sponsor Prime Video. Find your favorite shows like Reacher Season 2. Rent or buy new release movies like Hunger Games, The Ballad of Songbirds and Snakes. Get everything included with Prime and add on hundreds of streamers like Max for True Detective Night Country. One app, one password, Prime Video. Find your happy place. Restrictions apply. Prime membership not required to rent or buy. Prime membership required for add-on subscriptions. See Amazon.com slash Amazon Prime for details. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. I'm talking with Angie Stone. She's a soul singer and once upon a time was a rapper as well. She co-founded the all-woman hip-hop group The Sequence in 1979. When did you first hear rap oh my god i when you know we heard a song that king tim the third did um 
before the Sugar Hill Gang uh, had come out with the record. We heard this song and knew then, you know, something was happening in the world. Just wasn't sure what, but we were inspired by King Tim the Third. Here we go. You stomp your feet cause you're listening to the sound of the show shot beat. I'm the K-I-N-G, the G-I-M, King Tim the Third, and I am him. Just me, Fat Bat, and the crew, we're doing it all just for you. We're strong as an ox and tall as a tree. We can rock you so viciously. We throw the hives in your eyes, the bass in your face. We're the funk machines that rock the human race. Skate down, boogie shot. Come on, girl, let's do the rock. Slam, dunk, do the jerk. His record, Personality Jock, it was kind of like a... A patter record, like it was like a, in the style of a, an FM radio DJ who right. rhymed on song intros, which was like a thing that had been going on for 10, 12 years at that point, something like that. Right, right. And you had, you know, so many DJs that were uh, taking that uh, that position. But, uh, you know, KT III had done his little thing, and he was flowing with it, and we were just, uh, you know, smitten by it. How old were you? Ooh, I think we were 12, 14, somewhere in there, 14, 15. You're singing R&B songs at the rec center and uh, gospel songs with your dad and maybe Sundays on at church. Did you start writing rhymes with your friends on at the playground? Not right away. But uh, we started writing rhymes after we heard King Tim, King Tim III. We started writing rhymes. So at that point, we were, uh, you know, it was easier uh, to flow because we had a lead to follow. But other than that, we didn't, you know, there was no template other than that for us to build our, you know, vibe on. We started to create and be our own entity at that point. Wham, bam, the monster jammer. Get up, everybody, and do the freak to the beat. Wham, bam, the monster jammer. Get up, everybody, and do the freak to the beat. You're the S to the P, double O-N-Y You're the one MC, I'll never deny You better watch out and i tell you why Cause I'm and your beat, I might give you a time Now you're looking in my eyes and you're in a trance And all you can think of is my sweet romance Hey Spoonie G, I'm and your beat And I'd like to know what you got for me When you started the sequence, which was the group that sort of made your music career when you were in your teens Mm-hmm. Did the three of you think of yourselves as a singing group or a rap group? Absolutely a rap group. Now, I was a, a singer because I had a band and wanted to kind of put things together. But, uh, you know, we were clearly still young, so we were trying to do it all. I think for a lot of people, hearing rappers delight on the radio, especially outside outside certain parts of New York City where there was like parties where rappers were, you know, rapping on stage and MCs were MCing. Right. A lot of people describe that moment when they heard rappers delight on the radio as like uh as a light bulb. Were you already rapping by the time that record hit? Yeah, we we 
were doing, you know, like I said, we had never heard them. So we were doing our inversion of Funk You Up based off of, you know, following King Tim the Third's vibe. So by the time we heard Sugar Hill Gang, we were like, what in the world is this? Because it was super long, but it was familiar because they had used a familiar record. So it kind of blew us away, but it was it was so much fun and incredible, you know. I said a hip the hip it, the hip it, the hip, hip hop, you don't stop. Rock it out, baby, bubble to the boogity bang bang, the boogie to the boogity beat. Now what you hear is not a test, I'm rapping to the beat. And me, the groove, and my friends are gonna try to move your feet. You see, I am Wonder Mike, and I like to say hello. Up to the black, to the white, the red, and the brown, the purple, and yellow. But first, I gotta bang, bang, the boogie to the boogie. Say up, jump, the boogie to the bang, bang, boogie, let's rock. The 12 inch mix of Rapper's Delight is like 12 minutes long or something like that. Exactly. And they just rap and rap and rap and rap and rap and rap and rap until they're out of things to say, basically. Exactly. Exactly. And and that was the nature of hip hop back then. They just, you know, rapped and they were doing books, in my opinion, paragraphs and tablets of rhyme because you know you had to take up every uh concept of music or beat you had to fill it with something so um that's uh, that was the nature of hip-hop back then to me do you remember any of the raps that you wrote when you were that age (laughs) not really to be real honest with you outside of funk you up I don't remember them all, you know, some of the ones that we recorded, absolutely. But you got to remember, you're talking 50 years ago. Were you guys performing at parties and stuff? We were performing at our school performances and, you know, hip hops. We called them hops back then. You know, there was a DJ, there was a DJ and he was spinning records and give us the mic and walk. We were just be having, you know, the school would have a party and we would have a party within the party. The Sequence weren't just the first female rap group with a hit record, but also the first Southern rap group with a hit record. You know, you weren't in the Bronx at block parties, you know, whatever no. the that story of hip hop is. You were in the Carolinas. Did you feel like this was a thing that was visiting from far away that you were jumping into or did it feel like a, you know, did it feel like home? It felt like home. I I will say that uh, it was, it, it was hard because, you know, you had to create the template. It was a, you know, you didn't have a huge lead to follow. So, you know, Along the way, you were the crash test dummy. So, and when I say that, I say it loosely because you had to create the story, make it make sense, try to sell yourself the, the joy of it and have fun in the meantime. So all of it was, you know, it was a part of the history 
of hip-hop overall, southern, northern, however you want to slice it. Everybody had their appeal, and we had ours. How did you get signed when you were 600 miles away from the entire hip-hop world? Well, uh, I think having uh, an original, clever idea and a southern accent is what spawned the idea of Sylvia signing the group. I think we got signed because we were original. We were uh, not like anything out there. But, you know, because we were different, because we were from the South, we stood a better chance than most because we were different. And this is Sylvia Robinson of Sugar Hill Records. Correct. How did you get your music to her? Did you send her a tape? No, we actually uh, snuck, well, I won't say snuck in, but we got invited to a concert, which the Sugar Hill Gang was in the Township Auditorium in Columbia, South Carolina. Uh, We just happened to be there. Harold Miles, who was their road manager at the time, let us be backstage, brought us to the stage, you know, he was liking me. And so he was just trying to please the girls. And we were trying to get in a concert. We ended up getting in and getting all the way through meeting, that's for meeting Sylvia, only to find out that was their first tour. The first leg of their tour was the first stop they made. And on that stop, we were there, we got picked up. So you're talking about the three of you were just hanging out outside trying to figure out how to get in? Correct. We were hanging out. This guy uh, that uh, used to work with Blondie uh, got us tickets. He wanted to try to manage us or do some stuff, and he said, I'll get you tickets to get in. And so he had promised us that he would leave passes. We went there thinking there were passes, only to find out. There weren't any passes. So we had to, you know, work our way in. So we weren't hanging out. The beauty of it was Harold Miles, who was the Shaquille Gang's road manager, is the guy that actually brought us in backstage after he discovered us because he wanted to, you know, talk to me and flirt. And I was just a baby but I, I wanted to get in, so I followed the lead. And that's how we end up getting in backstage. And voila, the group the, the group got signed, Miss Sylvia Robinson, and the rest is history. Do you remember what it was like when you got backstage? I mean, that's like a that's like a heady place to be, you know what I mean? Yeah. I was excited. You know, I was just like most other teenagers who get to meet, you know, idols. All of a sudden, we're backstage with one of the hottest groups in the country. Of course, you're static. You're extremely excited. So for us, it was, a, you know, it was delightful. Let's put it that way. Did you know who Sylvia Robinson was or recognize her or like how did you get from i'm backstage to hey 
important record label boss where a music group <laughs> listened to us rap? Well, I'll tell you this way. Sylvia was more my mom's cup of tea. You know, she had a song, Pillow Talk. I really didn't know of her like that. But, you know, once I realized I was a monk star, she was a beautiful, beautiful person. Uh, when I saw and I recognized we were amongst that level of starship, you know, I kind of tripped out because I'm like, how in the world did we get here? And then I realized that it was ordained for us to be in that spot at that particular time. And uh, Sylvia knew just what to do. And, you know, you know, when you sit back and think about it, as surprising as it is, it's not as surprising as you really think it is because at the end of the day, you're there and you're supposed to be there. So I began to uh, realize that a lot of things started to happen as a result of it's supposed to happen. And I think hip-hop back then for us, uh, being the first female group or with an original rap record and a southern group, all of that was a part of history um, that we generally didn't have anything to do with but ended up having everything, you know, to be responsible for. So I'm grateful we got the position and the timing to get it done. Did she, like, stand up in the back of the room and say, hello, I'm music industry empresaria Sylvia Robinson. Does, would anyone here like to rap for me? <laughs> no, Sylvia Robinson was very cool coming because she knew what she wanted. She knew what she was doing. Uh, every move was calculated. She did what she was supposed to do to be the boss that she ended up being. So how did you end up auditioning for her? We didn't audition. I actually got uh, backstage. Once we got backstage, um, we saw the Chiquita Gang rapper. We said, we could do that. And uh, she said, well, let me hear what you got. And I think when she heard the hook funk you up, she was so smitten by our accents that the accent alone is what sold the record. And as we began to open up that song, her, her eyes opened up, and it was just like she began to hear in the spirit that, oh, my God, this is going to be huge. What did your parents say when you came home from the concert and said, Mom, Dad, I went to the concert over at the, the Civic Center or the arena or whatever it was. And uh, anyway, long story short, I have a record contract and next week I'm going to New York. My mother didn't believe it. And my dad was like, girl, sit down somewhere. You know, in his mind, I was talking out my face <laughs> crazy because the, that could never happen. And, and unfortunately, you know, my dad and them didn't believe it for a long time. For a long time after that? Yeah, they didn't believe it until, you know, Miss Robinson reached out and said, I want to sign these girls. So much more with Angie Stone still to come. 
Her first hits with her group, The Sequence, were when she was a teenager, but she had her first hit solo records as a singer much later in her career. She was about 20 years older than everybody else on the charts. We'll talk about what that was like. It's Bullseye for MaximumFun.org and NPR. This message comes from NPR sponsor Carvana. Carvana has made it easy to sell your car. Just enter your license plate or VIN, answer a few questions, and they'll give you a real offer in seconds, and it's good for up to seven days. Visit Carvana.com to get an instant offer today. Pop Culture Happy Hour from NPR is with you four days a week to talk about what we're watching, listening to, or just trying to figure out. What you might check out this weekend, what you checked out last weekend, it's all fair game for good conversation. For pop culture and high spirits, listen now to the Pop Culture Happy Hour podcast from NPR. If you need a laugh and you're on the go, try S-T-O-P-P-O-D-C-A-S-T-I. Hmm. Were you trying to put the name of the podcast there? Yeah, I'm trying to spell it, but it's tricky. Let me give it a try. Okay. If you need a laugh and you're on the go, call S-T-O-P-P-P-A-D. Ah, it'll never fit. No, it will. Let me try. If you need a laugh and you're on the go, try S-T-O-P-P-P-T-C-O-O. Oh, we are so close. Stop podcasting yourself. A podcast from MaximumFun.org. If you need a laugh and you're on the go. Welcome back to Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. If you're just joining us, my guest is Angie Stone. She is a hit-making soul singer, a Grammy nominee, and a co-founding member of The Sequence. They were the first hit-making all-woman rap group. They signed to Sugar Hill Records in 1979. Let's get back into our conversation. As your record started to get out onto the radio, was there a moment when you felt like, this is real? Well, there are moments that you feel like it's real, but then there it's more unreal, <laughs> believe it or not, because you have to, you know, put it in your mind that, oh, wow, is this, you know, like really happening for me. Did you think this was going to be your life when, you know, when you were on big package tours and going on TV and you had a hit record on the radio and stuff? Well, I definitely didn't think this would be a part of my world. I just never saw it, could never dream or imagine it because I never do what, you know, being a celebrity or being a star felt like or what to expect. I never dreamed that big or that far. But it didn't go on forever. You came home eventually. You ended up actually having a kid and getting married. Mm-hmm. So once you got into domestic life, were you trying to figure out what your music career was if you were married with a child? Absolutely not sure how I was going to do this, being, you know, straight out of high school, no diploma, no degrees, no focus other than this music thing. Now I got a whole family and life to lead and limited resources, you know, to get there. So you, you don't really put it together and know how you're going to, you know, make it pan out. And that was my issue. And I mean, hip hop was moving so fast in those years. 
like yes. you know you were you were old fashioned style wise two years after you came out you know what I mean yes yes old fashioned you know still in that way because we you know we have what they call mother wit which is you know when we kind of set in our ways so you're absolutely right. So at what point did you realize, oh, I have the singing chops to be a singer for my career and move towards that? Mm. Well, I, I've always known singing was my passion. Uh, it was the one thing that got me to rapping, and that was singing. So I knew being a church girl and being someone who had, you know, my father being a quartet singer, I, I knew my calling was more there than anywhere. It had been, it had been prophesied to me that uh, my career, uh, my greatest time would come later in my, uh, as I got older, it would, uh, my career would not reach the stratosphere in my early teens. It would be in my 30s or late, you know, close to 40, that I would find the success that I ended up finding. And even though it was told to me, it was very accurate. Yeah, I ended up becoming successful or getting my best, you know, foot forward at a later age in the game. Who prophesied it to you? <laughs> a, a, a prophet. A secret prophet? <laughs> <laughs> no, a prophet. You know, I'm, I'm a very spiritual person, so, you know, prophetically, if it's told to me or spoken over me, I, you know, either choose to believe it or disbelieve it. And cer certain things I do believe, and that was one that I did believe in, in, in right, and it was right and exact, so, yeah. What was it like for you when you were making hit records in the late 90s, early 2000s, and you were 40-ish, and you were making hit records alongside uh, singers who were 24. Like, how did that change your relationship to your peers? It really didn't change my relationship to my peers. It made me more comfortable to fit in, you know, and, and be accepted for who I am, as opposed to being judged for who I'm not. So it, it, it wasn't bad for me. It was actually a good thing. Angie Stone, I sure am grateful for your time. Thank you so much for talking to me. Man, thank you. I had a wonderful time. Uh, thank you for your patience. I know I twisted my ankle uh, yesterday. I know they told you about that, but listen, we okay. As, as much as I'd like to say, uh, Thank you to the rest of the world. I want to thank you guys for taking the time out to, you know, just be interested in my little life. Angie Snow, her latest album, Love Language, is out now. That's the end of another episode of Bullseye. Bullseye is created from the homes of me and the staff of Maximum Fun in and around greater Los Angeles, California. I thought I got rid of these stupid moths that were eating my clothes, but it turned out I didn't. I'm really mad about it. 
This show is produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our senior producer is Kevin Ferguson. Our producers are Jesus Ambrosio and Richard Roby. Our production fellow here at Maximum Fun is Brianna Paz. We get booking help from Mara Davis. Our interstitial music is by the great DJW, also known as Dan Wally. Our thanks to Robert Gall for recording Angie Stone in her home. Our theme song is called Huddle Formation, written and recorded by the Go team. Thanks to them, and thanks to Memphis Industries, their label. Go follow us on Instagram, at Bullseye with Jesse Thorne. See pictures of folks who roll through the studio and how we do what we do and who's coming up on the show and all that kind of stuff. Uh, At Bullseye with Jesse Thorne on Instagram. And I think that's about it. Just remember, all great radio hosts have a signature sign-off. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. Every weekday, NPR's best political reporters come to you on the NPR Politics Podcast to explain the big news coming out of Washington, the campaign trail, and beyond. They don't just tell you what happened, they tell you why it matters. Join the NPR Politics Podcast every afternoon to understand the world through political eyes.